Welcome to Dental Dilemmas, brought to you by the ADA Council on Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs. I'm your host, James Purvis. Today, using the ADA's Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct, we will explore one of our published ethical moments through the lens of all five principles of ethics found within the Code. Non-maleficence, beneficence, justice, veracity, and patient autonomy. Today's question covers a topic that has received much attention related to changes in licensure examination during and after the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm honored to welcome Dr. Ronnie Scarborough to discuss his previously published article from February of 2018. I've just graduated from dental school and had to take a licensing board examination to receive my dental license. I do not feel that the process addresses the overall long-term oral health needs of my patients because it is a, quote, one-shot treatment, end quote, rather than one step in developing an ongoing relationship with a patient. In addition, my patient asked me for more money to, quote, allow, end quote, me to treat him at the examination site. I'm frustrated with the examination process. Does using live patients for dental licensing examinations raise ethical considerations? Well, hello, and thank you so much for tuning in. This is James Purvis, a member of CIVJA. Council of Ethics, Bylaws, Judicial Affairs for the ADA. The ethical moment involved here is the ethics of using live patients for licensing board examinations. We're thrilled to have Dr. Scarborough with us. We're happy to have his expertise and insight. And so on that note, I'd like to open it up to him a little bit to tell us about where he practices, how he practices, why he pursued dentistry, and any background that he may have that makes him particularly an expert on this topic. So with no further ado, thank you, Dr. Scarborough, for being with us. Thanks, James. I am in South Mississippi, small town, 1,500 people on a good day. I practice alone, solo practitioner in my office. There's another dentist in the town with me. History, I was on Sebja back in the day. I've been on CDL. I'm currently a Mississippi delegate to the ADA. I was on the AGD board and served also as the AGD Foundation trustee, going up through the chairs on both organizations, the Dental Association as well as AGD in Mississippi. I was a dental board examiner, and I currently do exams around the nation. Is that enough history about me? I think it sounds great. That really does. And we had mentioned before the call we were catching up, and you had informed me that currently there are no states in the United States, no state boards requiring live patient examination as a statute of licensure. Is that correct? That's correct. Excellent. However, some of those testing agencies may still offer live patient exams as an option, but that's only if the candidate chooses that option. It kind of depends on where and how they're taking the exam. Is that correct? That's correct. Right now, I don't see a need for anyone to be taking a live patient exam as the mannequin exam is accepted as the clinical licensure part of receiving a license in, I call it the jurisdictions because it's not only, remember, it's not only the United States, but also the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, 
in Jamaica. Good clarification, Ronnie. Did we find that, it, I suppose it was probably COVID. Now, of course, this was happening before COVID. But there were certainly mannequin components. Like I, I took uh, the CETA exam back in 2000 and goodness, 2011, 2012. And our endo and, and pros components were on mannequins. Operative components and perio components were on live patients. But would you say that, that perhaps the, the COVID pandemic kind of expedited the the push toward more mannequin-based examinations? I'll say yes, simply because it, it is in the mix now as to why we're we're all pretty much mannequin-based exams. Well, let me go back to your board exam. What were, when you think back to taking your examination, tell me a little bit about how, how that was administered. And, and did you happen to remember any ethical concerns that may have been raised when you were preparing for or taking your particular board exam? Oh, that was 1989, and the only thing I was worried about was my patients showing up for the exam. I'd prepped them. It was part of their treatment plan for them to have the work done, so I was using patients of record at my school, and whenever I finished school, those patients were still going to be in the team for them to have any more work that they needed to be done. Our test was a live patient exam. It was three days long. I had to do a crown, a cast crown, from start to finish in one day, had to do a pen amalgam, a class two, a class three, perio, and dentures, all in three days. Goodness gracious, we didn't we didn't have to do a lot of that. Ours, like I said before, this has been you know t- ten years ago, but it was it was endo, it was price on a mannequin. We had a perio exam, and then there was uh, certainly the operative exams, class three composite, and then a class two amalgam, or you could have chosen composite. Um, I, I chose a of mine. Back when you were administering some of the live patient examinations, what were some of the patient selection criteria? How are these candidates picking their patients for these live patient board exams? The same criteria that's on the exam today was used then pretty much. You had to have a class two and a class three for your operative. And perio was, well, of course, a live patient too. So the, the candidates, that's what they had to find their patients and get them to the exam site, wherever they were taking it. I remember preparing for my exam. We had uh, the operative requirements. I, I remember the whole six months leading up to it, we were trying to search for the, the perfect class two, class three lesions. I, I think when we took it, I'd have to go back and look at it. I think there had to be radiographic evidence that the lesion extended to or just beyond the DEJ, but we would look at bite wings and just squint at them and put our glasses on and stand back from the computer. And we, we really wanted this thing to be right. And I also remember a lot of my classmates, the big thing, like you said, was trying to get people to show up, trying to make sure that your patient was there. We had classmates that were putting patients up at local hotels and picking them up morning and they'd have their parents get them breakfast and all kinds of things. It was a stressful time, but I, I did feel like at least when we took it, and I took the CETA examination, but it was incredibly professional, well-organized. The uh, board examiners were, were, were very, very, very gracious. They wanted to help you with paperwork. I mean, you had to have your, your stuff buttoned up, but if you did, they were willing to to help you and, and guide you in any way. And I, I found it to be all this stressful. I found it to be a pretty good experience. Well, let's get a little bit into the ADA code. I really like in your ethical moment, you you literally break it down according to the ADA codes of ethics. I mean, you, you run through all five of them. And um, if you stay tuned after the podcast, at the end of this episode, there's a 
a brief segment where I run over the different uh, standards within the ADA Code of Ethics. But briefly, and Roddy, just sort of pick the highlights here, but when you think of live patient exams historically and you know, perhaps even a little bit in the present day, what aspects of the ADA Code of Ethics jump out at you and, and things that you think might be pertinent to these exams? Well, I will tell you that I have yet to have a mannequin come into my office to be treated. So treating live patients is what I do every day and what we as dental students do every day at the school. So ethically, it all falls down to what Roddy does. He's, he's got to have his ethics on the right page to be able to follow the code of ethics. The worry of getting your patients and you know, doing no harm, doing good, all these things that come up in the code, we have to remember that it's up to us, that's the reason we're called professionals, that we can't fudge the truth just to, to get the things done that we need to be licensed. Exactly. It, um, I really like the way that you run through all the different aspects of it. And I'd encourage anybody listening to go through it. Do, do you think, this is a different topic, but do you think sometimes the high stakes of the examination itself might raise either some ethical dilemmas or perhaps put people in a different situation during an examination that maybe they wouldn't find themselves in private practice? Or do you feel like that, well, perhaps everything that we do is high stakes. We're always, we should always be on the top of our game trying to do everything we can for, for these individuals. How do you think that may play into it? Well, in my practice, everything is high stakes. There's a attorney that has one call, that's all. And it's on every billboard when you drive through town. So you have to think about that coming in. But it's high stakes when you're in school as a student and you're doing a proficiency. If you're not successful with that proficiency, you're not able to, to continue on until you're successful with that proficiency. So it's high stakes no matter where we are. And then whenever you get in private practice, you're taking the board exam every day, all day on your patients. I love it. It's true. I mean, we're in there every single day trying to do the very best we can to, to love on these patients, to communicate honestly with them, to do good, to do no harm, to be truthful to these patients. And everybody in our office you're right every single procedure is an opportunity to treat that patient with love and respect or an opportunity where you know something may not go completely right and you're faced with a very difficult but necessary decision to inform and treat and document and do all the things that you do I, one of my favorite speakers is a gentleman who talks about he's an airline pilot and he always talks about the pilots that that get lackadaisical thinking they, are, they can't crash, they're the ones that go down. And the ones that stay on their toes and stay operationally competent and treat every single flight and every minute of each flight as they should, like it counts, they're, they're the ones that, that stay in the air. And I think a lot of that applies to private practice. In, in your particular practice, how do you embrace the ADA Code of Ethics? How do you daily check yourself, ask yourself, keep yourself reminded of what really matters? And how do you work with your team on keeping these topics at, at the forefront of your practice? I'm, I guess I'm old school, so to speak. I try to treat patients like I would want to be treated as a patient. To me, that's the fairness part of this, that no matter a patient's financial status, I still have to treat them like I want to be treated, provide them with all the information that I have. So I, I just try to treat people fairly, I guess, with thinking that it's my mama or my daddy in the chair. 
That's so important. And then that brings up another ethical moment I think we're going to be uh, discussing here shortly on the podcast, which is treatment of family members and friends. And you're right. I mean, I, I try to do my, my very best. I, I've only done this for 10 years. I've only been out in practice for a decade, but I do. When you go in there, you have these patients that, that they, they just love you and that they're entrusting their care in, in into your hands. And you have to honestly love them and treat them as you would your own family, inform them, talk them through these things. And I think it's so important and it's something that you grow to revere that responsibility more and more each day. Roddy, what advice would you give a new dentist? Somebody out of school, perhaps they're starting in practice, perhaps they're just really getting started working in a community. What guidance would you give them about ethics, about the ADA code, about what it means to love a patient and treat them well? Well, it starts from how I want to be treated. So whenever I first came back home to practice, I went to the Rotary Club. I went to the school functions. I did everything to be seen to be sure that people knew that there was somebody there in town being willing to take care of them. And then whenever they came in, I would still tell them what they need to have done. And to this day, I still will let you go home if you don't know what you want to do. If you know you're hurting, if you do not know what you want to do, I'm not going to force treatment on you. So I will let you get up and leave the building knowing that you're probably going to see me tonight or you're probably going to see me tomorrow or whenever you need to be treated. So I've, I've learned that no is the answer to treatment questions, even though I may know know what's going to happen and what's what to help you to avoid any problems. But it's still my knowledge and skills that I can't force on them. Now, speaking of knowledge and skills, you've got to do continuing education. You've got to find a study club to be part of. You've got to keep your skills up because the skills that you learn in dental school are basically obsolete when you get out in private practice. So you've got to keep up with all the stuff that's going on to truly be the professional that we want to be. It's true. We have to stay on our toes. We have to surround ourselves with people and organizations that can pour into us and allow us to keep learning. You mentioned letting somebody get up and leave. Perhaps they don't want to perceive the treatment. They want time to think about it and allowing them the opportunity to do that. It's funny you bring it up in this conversation because that was one of my biggest fears when I took the board exam. I thought, goodness gracious, if I get this patient in the chair and suddenly they decide that they do not want this DO amalgam performed on number 29. That's the one step between me and a dental license. I had that fear. Looking back on your time as an examiner, do you remember any cases like that or any ethical moments that may have popped up during the exam? Obviously speaking in general terms, but do any moments like that pop up or any students that dealt with things like that? Oh, yeah. In a live patient, you're going to have everything happen to you that uh, could possibly happen. And, and the conversation that I have had whenever I've been asked by D4s is that you have to have a relationship with this patient before you get them to come to sit for a board exam. If you inform them of what's going to be going on, they know what's going on, what to expect, that they're more apt to be positive participants in the board exam. I mean, it's better to under-promise and over-deliver than it is the other way around. So with the board exam, I would tell the patients it's a nine-hour exam. You tell your patient that they're going to have the potential to be there for nine hours. You're happy that they're there. You're thankful that they're there. But having a conversation with the patient beforehand and not just jump into this like you're getting married at first sight kind of thing. This is a patient. Whenever it was a live patient, it was a time management issue as well as a 
patient management issue. Now that you have the mannequin going on, you don't have to worry about the patient because they're they're on time, they're anesthetized, and they're not spitting anywhere and don't have to get up and go to the bathroom during the procedure. So you're good to go under the current situation for the board exams that we do. I remember that. And it's funny because I, I remember being a lot less, of course, I was pretty stressed out when I took both of my exams, but I remember being less stressed out on the front end about the prosthodontic exam and the endo exam because they were mannequin based. And I knew that my patients, when I walked in the simulator lab, they'd be there and I wouldn't have to anesthetize them or wait for them to show up or any of these other things. And I, and I love in your article, and you, you did mention this in the second paragraph, and you said that the patient must be informed of and understand as much as possible about the examination day process. For example, a long day, a lack of breaks. The patient must also be informed that you're not yet a licensed dentist, but you're under the supervision of a licensed dentist. What, in your experience, and, and we had some students when I took the exam that did run into some difficult situations, perhaps a carious lesion was a lot deeper than they thought, or perhaps iatrogenically they discovered that they had done something and it was uh, discovered by themselves or the examiner. And, and there was always, and I remember there were plenty of licensed dentists there on the floor that could immediately step in, advise the candidate, advise the patient on what needed to be done, uh, give the patient clear standards regarding follow-up care. There was plenty of that going on. In your experience, uh, is that sort of what you found as well? Did you find that these licensed dentists supervising this were able and willing to jump in when needed to advise these candidates and patients on things that might need to be done or future treatment that might be required? Yes, sir. And that was part of the patient paperwork and the candidate paperwork was the follow-up care form. So if Roddy got a pub exposure on his DO on number 29, as you talked about a while ago, that the follow-up care form was already there, ready to go. A copy was given to the patient. Of course, the communication happened with the patient then, and things were taken care of. But every board that I ever did, there was a follow-up care form. If you were a student at the school the, that the exam was going on, and it went to the GPR clinic or the AGD clinic to be seen right then, or you were going to deal with that issue Monday at school under your instructor's license, so to speak, the patient knew what needed to be done, and they were told what, when, where and when it could happen. And, of course, the cost was borne by the school or the candidate. That's what we found with ours, too. I took mine at Chapel Hill, and it was incredibly clear within the paperwork what follow-up would be needed if anything were to happen or any more treatment were to be needed. I, and I will probably end up closing with this and maybe one more question. You've been incredibly generous with your time this evening, but... What advice would you give a, a dental student or perhaps a candidate applying for licensure in a jurisdiction? As you said, what advice would you give them as they approach either their mannequin-based exam and or their life patient exam? Well, Roddy's nice now, okay? Whenever we had to do the patient-based exam, it was three days long. Whenever I took it, I thought that was worse than death itself because you were just stressed for three days. Now you take a mannequin exam, sign up for the mannequin exam, take the ADEX exam. I mean, I'll be quite honest with you. If I had a chance to take one exam that would take care of my licensure requirements for every state in the union, with the exception of Delaware and New York, that would be the exam that I would take. So I would find out where there is an ADEX exam that is given that they can take. That's a mannequin-based exam now. Take both parts mannequin-based 
and you're done. After that, all you have to do is take your jurisprudence for whichever state you're going into and you're licensed to go to any of those states. But I've, first off, I would tell you to read the manual, the exam manual. Whatever exam you take, read the exam manual. It's only been online since I know of 2005 with the changes that are made. The changes are put online basically the next day. So Roddy being the smart aleck says, read the manual before you get to the exam. We have plenty of people come in with no knowledge of the exam. They just look at you like deer in a headlight. So prepare for the exam. This is the biggest test of your life so far. So be prepared for it and relax. Eat something that morning before you come to the school, to the location to take the exam and just be relaxed. Make what information you have in your head come out the end of your fingers. It's incredible advice. And I'm just, I'm just so thankful that you've taken the time to share with us on this. The ethical moment you wrote was wonderful. I, I would encourage any of our listeners to take a look at it. Again, it was February of 2018. And uh, the title was Ethics of Using Life Patients for Licensing Board Examinations. Ronnie, do you have any final thoughts you want to share with us about this topic or, or any bit of advice you'd like to give our listeners? Just remember that dentistry is a profession and we are self-governed which means that the dentists govern the dentist. And State Board of Dental Examiners use the licensing exam that they choose to protect the citizens of their state. State boards are legislatively mandated to protect the public. And this now a mannequin board exam is what states around the union have chosen to see the candidate as an initial understanding, minimal competency for doing dentistry by this exam. Don't be afraid of it. The smart aleck in me says this is a D2 exam. You cut on deniform teeth. You cut on them before. Learn how to read a probe. Learn how to read the manual. And you should do good and be successful on this exam. Dr. Scarborough, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And I look forward to our viewers listening to this, learning from it as they approach whatever licensing exam they choose to take or for viewers or listeners, excuse me, that have already taken their exams to look back on it and consider some of the ethical considerations involved. From all of us at CBJ, thank you for your prior service. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us and we greatly appreciate your service to your patients and to our profession. Enjoy talking with you, James. Thank you. Thank you, Roddy. A final note about the episode. Please see the show notes for a link to the original article and stay tuned for future episodes. At the close of the episode, continue listening to hear the sections of the ADA's Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct pertinent to the original Ethical Moment article. Thank you for keeping ethics at the forefront of the dental profession and join Sebja as we continue to solve dental dilemmas. Section one, patient autonomy or self-governance. The dentist has a duty to respect the patient's rights to self-determination and confidentiality. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to treat the patient according to the patient's desires, within the bounds of accepted treatment, and to protect the patient's confidentiality. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include 
involving patients and treatment decisions in a meaningful way, with due consideration being given to the patient's needs, desires, and abilities, and safeguarding the patient's privacy. Principle two, non-maleficence, or do no harm. The dentist has a duty to refrain from harming the patient. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to protect the patient from harm. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include keeping knowledge and skills current, knowing one's own limitations, and when to refer to a specialist or other professional, and knowing when and under what circumstances delegation of patient care to auxiliaries is appropriate. Principle three, beneficence, or do good. The dentist has a duty to promote the patient's welfare. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to act for the benefit of others. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligation is service to the patient and the public at large. The most important aspect of this obligation is the competent and timely delivery of dental care within the bounds of clinical circumstances presented by the patient, with due consideration being given to the needs, desires, and values of the patient. The same ethical considerations apply whether the dentist engages in fee-for-service, managed care, or some other practice arrangement. Dentists may choose to enter into contracts governing the provision of care to a group of patients. However, contract obligations do not excuse dentists from their ethical duty to put the patient's welfare first. Principle four, justice or fairness. The dentist has a duty to treat people fairly. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to be fair in their dealings with patients, colleagues, and society. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include dealing with people justly and delivering dental care without prejudice. In its broadest sense, this principle expresses the concept that the dental profession should actively seek allies throughout society on specific activities that will help improve access to care for all. Principle five, veracity or truthfulness. The dentist has a duty to communicate truthfully. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to be honest and trustworthy in their dealings with people. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include respecting the position of trust inherent in the dentist-patient relationship, communicating truthfully and without deception, and maintaining intellectual integrity. Remember to keep ethics at the forefront of your daily practice and stay tuned as Seabja decodes dental dilemmas.